It was a pleasure to burn. It was a special pleasure to see things eaten, to see things blackened and changed. With the brass nozzle in his fists, with this great python spitting its venomous kerosene upon the world, the blood pounded in his head, and his hands were the hands of some amazing conductor, playing all the symphonies of blazing and burning to bring down the tatters and charcoal ruin of history. Well, that is the opening lines of the cancelled and burned history book, Fahrenheit 451. I'm Eon Nunn, and welcome to Story War. Our greatest architecture is about After even all, in the Soviet Union. Right. You but your scientists are so bad about whether or not they could not stop thinking. You gotta go to the other side of the screen. Then you have to go you and I have a rendezvous with destiny. Now, I know there are three different reactions from those of y'all listening right now to what I just said. There's those of y'all listening right now, and you have no idea why we're talking right now. There are those of y'all who are listening and yelling at me because you have no sense of humor and Fahrenheit 451 is not a history book, but a dystopian fiction. And then there's that third beautiful group of y'all who get the joke and are sadly laughing because you are getting the reason that this episode is titled Prophets Burn at 451. And this episode is going to be a bit different than episodes in the past because we're going to be doing a deep dive into this American classic and hang out on some really pressing topics in today's culture. So we're going to talk about cancel culture and history and truth, and we're also going to talk about why we need books. And we're going to do that, like I said, by going through the book Fahrenheit 451. If you've never read the book, you really should. I think it's about high school age book, and it falls in the genre of dystopian fiction, like I said earlier. And what dystopian fiction is, is speculative fiction that generally explores different social and political constructs and structures that often, those are often the core of the dystopian novel. All right, they are often in a lie. That person or group of people tend to be a ruling class, and they're telling the populace to make it seem as if they are living in utopia, right? So they're really in a dystopian world, but they look as if they're living in utopia. In books that are often um, in this genre, also in the genre of science fiction because of some of the futuristic stuff that's happening in some of the books, and books that would be um, put in this genre would be 1984, Brave New World, The Giver, and then more recently, um, The Hunger Games and The Reapers trilogy. And even the original Star Wars trilogy and some of its expanded universe um, would be considered dystopian fiction. And so it's in this vein that Fahrenheit 451 lives. It was written by Ray Bradbury, who was a 20th century author and screenwriter. And he was a very influential creative from writing short stories and novels to operas and screenplays. With Fahrenheit 451 being his most famous work. Now, you may be wondering how the book got its name. And interestingly enough, he had written the book and was looking for a good title. So he called the fire department in Los Angeles and asked for the fire chief of L.A. 
and he asked the fire chief when he got on the line, at what temperature does book paper catch on fire and burn? To which the um, chief replies, 451 degrees Fahrenheit. And Bradbury thought that sounded pretty good and just reversed it. Um, so it would be Fahrenheit 451. And so it was finally published um, for the first time in 1953 and was pretty instantly a smashing success, um, both in America and in um, the United Kingdoms, and was considered an American classic. And one of the things you have to remember when reading this book is the time in which it was written, because it was written where images and stories of the book burnings in Nazi Germany were still very much in the imagination of many and the Cold War was very much alive, um, actively going on, and the threat of nuclear war was quite real. Um, that's really the framework for the text that we're about to go on to. And so before we get to the text itself, I just wanted to say thank you uh, for listening to the podcast and coming every week to listen to me talk um, about things that really matter. In any way that you can support the show would be much appreciated as we are still a very young podcast and sharing this podcast on social media by word of mouth really helps, as well as leaving a comment and a five-star review on iTunes. This whole episode in one sense is about being canceled. And to avoid that, we need your help to outsmart the algorithms and big tech any way we can. If you like the things that we talk about on this podcast, you'll really appreciate the work we do over at Project 68, as well as the work we do over at Lamp and Sword Productions. If you would like to support us, you can follow us at Project 68 underscore guild on Instagram. And if you want to engage more with me in particular, you can follow me at Inkling1776. Now, back to the show. So the book opens with this passage I read in the beginning of the show about how the main character, Montag, enjoys burning books. And this is his job. He's a fireman. And in the story, firemen are sent out to burn books and houses and houses that contain books. And even, we'll see later in the book, people. It's while he's walking home one day that he meets this teenage girl on the street named uh, Clarice McClellan. And right off the bat, he can tell that she's really different from most people, and they start conversing. She says um, crazy things about colors and nature, and she's talking about how she doesn't like to wash the parlor walls, which in the, in the book, parlor walls are like giant flat screen TVs that take up an entire wall. And it's really funny, as a side note, she talks about how she's 17 and crazy which is, in a sense, a rift on the whole idea of let children be children and don't judge a man on his sins as a child. Because in our culture right now, we are readily seeing people being canceled for doing something dumb when they were a teenager, which is completely wrong to do. So that's just an interesting rift of a thought there that we are now experiencing in our culture on a regular basis. Um, but to carry on from that... There is a big part of it about the culture, and there's this part that she that I'm about to read where um, Clarice is talking, and this is the conversation between her and Montag. And one important thing to note about the way the book is written is that it can be quite hard to read the first time because dialogue is very broken up. So it can be hard to follow the conversation of the characters at times, but this is where Bradbury is was brilliant. Um, by making people speak up in broken sentences because they don't have the education of free thought. So Bradbury writes this. 
They walked still further, and the girl said, Is it true that long ago firemen put fires out instead of going to start them? No, houses have always been fireproof. Take my word for it. Strange. I heard once that long ago, houses used to burn by accident, and they needed firemen to stop the flames. He laughed. She glanced quickly over. Why are you laughing? I don't know. He started to laugh again and stopped. Why? You laugh when I haven't been funny, and you answer it right off. You never stop to think what I've asked you. All right. Uh, so you can see there the breakdown in communication a little bit and just how much mass media has influenced the people of the day, right? Later in the first part of the book, you uh, meet Montag's wife, and she's just completely obsessed with the parlor walls. And she constantly has them on to the point that they really become her idols. And she doesn't even really care about her husband anymore, but just about her fake family that's on the walls. And this is so much like our culture, right? Um, with social media and Google and Amazon and all the mass media that big tech controls. And we're seeing it destroy people and relationships, but we're also seeing the destruction of books and films like, and so I think that I saw it on Mulberry Street, right, by Dr. Seuss, and then Gone with the Wind, right, one of the major classic American films. And then recently I was reading about how the cancel mob is trying to ban Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, okay? So these classic works are trying to be banned. And when you take a step back and look at how much big tech controls, it's kind of scary. But we must fight back because it's impossible to cancel the West, no matter the book burnings, digital or otherwise. We must not let them do it. Another thing that we see in this discussion is the line, right? We see this belief that firemen have always burned books. And we see this come out again when Montag is talking about it with his co-workers, at which point Bradbury writes, Stoneman and Black, who are um, two of Montag's associates, drew forth their rule books, which also contain brief histories of the firemen of America, and laid them out where Montag, though long familiar with him, might read established 1970, to burn English-influenced literature, books in the colonies. First fireman, Benjamin Franklin. Rule one, answer the alarm quickly. Two, start the fire swiftly. Three, burn everything. Four, report back to the firehouse immediately. Five, stand alert for other alarms. So we see this lie further propagated by those in charge when Montag starts to question things, right? They say that uh, Benjamin Franklin was the first fireman, right? Which if you look at history, like they're twisting things, right? That firemen are meant to burn things, burn in English-influenced books. And so when he starts to question this revisionist history he's taught, and then before it's really able to be discussed any further, the alarm comes. And they all jump into their transport called the Salamander, which is um, this futuristic version of a um, a fire truck, but it's meant to burn things. And they speed into the night and get to the old mansion, to what's considered the ancient part of the city. And this is what follows. It says, and they crashed the front door and grabbed at a woman. Though she was not running, she was not trying to escape. She was only standing, weaving from side to side, her eyes fixed upon a nothingness in the wall as though it struck her a terrible blow upon the head. Her tongue was moving, and her mouth and her eyes seemed to be trying to remember something, and then they remembered, 
and her tongue moved again. Play the man, Master Ridley. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. And this is one of the major scenes of the book where they burst into this lady's house because she is reported to have a collection of books. And this was uh, realistic to a lot of readers because this was in the height of the Cold War, like we said earlier, when a lot of authors and artists were often times being uh, falsely suspected of communist allegiances. And once the lady regains her senses, she says this quote, and she's actually alluding to the last words of Bishop, uh, Bishop Hugh Glatmer, um, who was considered a heretic by the Roman Catholic Church and was one of the three Oxford martyrs. Um, who was burnt at the stake by Queen Elizabeth I of England in October of 1555, um, along with Bishop Latmir, his friend, Bishop Nicholas Ridley, was also burned at the stake, at which Bishop Latmir says, Play the man, Master Ridley, we shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England, as I trust shall never be put out. And it's this um, time when the Catholic Church is really uh, persecuting Protestantism, and he says this because he realizes that even though they may get killed for their beliefs, for the words that they are saying, that the truth of their ideas would live on. And actually, after they found the books in her attic, uh, Montag secretly takes one of the books and hides it on him. And then the firemen dump kerosene on all the books and tell her to get out of the way so they can burn her house down. Um, but the lady takes out a match and strikes it, which causes the fireman to run, and she drops it and burns the house and all that's in it herself. And this seriously affects Montag in the story. Um, he was really traumatized by this event, uh, so much so that he wants to stay home because he is so sickened and confused about why he's burning books and why people are willing to die for them. And he starts to read the book that he smuggled out of the house, in the book he has is actually the Bible, or at least part of it um, from what the book says. And he starts to read the book of Ecclesiastes and it is greatly affected by it. And it's during this time that his superior, Captain Beatty, comes over and has a conversation with Montag and his wife. And he explains the censorship of, his, of uh, the censorship history and um, the mass media and the story. And he says this, when did it all start, you ask? This job of ours, how did it come about? Where, when? Well, I'd say it really got started around a about a thing called the Civil War. Even though our rule book claims it was founded earlier, the fact is we didn't get along well until photography came into its own. Then, motion picture in the early 20th century, radio, television, things begun to have mass. Montag sat in bed, not moving. And because they had mass, they became simpler said Beatty. Once books appealed to a few people here, there, everywhere, they could afford to be different. The world was roomy. But then the world got full of eyes and elbows and mouths, double, triple, quadruple population. Films and radios, magazines, books, leveled down to a sort of paste-pudding norm. Do you follow me? I think so. Beatty peered at the smoke pattern he had put out on the air. Picture it. 19th century man with his horses, dogs, carts, slow motion. Then the 20th century, speed up your camera. Books cut shorter. Condensations, digest, tabloids. Everything boils down to the gag, the snap ending. Snap ending, Mildred nodded. Classics cut to fit 15-minute radio shows, then cut again to fill a two-minute book column. Winding up at last to a 10 or 12-line dictionary resume. I exaggerate, of course. The dictionaries were for reference, but many were those whose sole knowledge, as I say, of Hamlet, 
you know the title, certainly Montag, is probably only a faint rumor of the title to you, Mrs. Montag, whose sole knowledge, as I say, of Hamlet was one-page digest in a book that claimed, now at last, you can read the classics. Keep up with your neighbors. Do you see? Out of the nursery, into the college, and back to the nursery. There is your intellectual pattern for the past five centuries or more. Wow, well, that's a lot to take in. Um, let's break it down, shall we? Beatty tells Montag that with the creation and rise of mass media came the censorship of books and the dumbing down of books, and therefore the dumbing down of education. And we see that this is spoken about further when Beatty says, schools are shortened, discipline relaxed, philosophies, histories, languages dropped, and English spelling gradually, gradually neglected. Finally, almost completely ignored. Life is immediate. The job counts. Pleasure lies about all after work. Why learn anything save pressing buttons, pulling switches, fitting nuts and bolts? Right, and we're living out this in our own day. I mean, there is a, this whole new movement of people who are going into the school system who are trying to get rid of cursive and are saying that 2 plus 2 doesn't equal 4. And we're gradually seeing the arts abandoned and technology being pushed upon young people. And one of the reasons that video game market is so huge is because they are being prepared for a new age of warfare. Where a remote controlled weapon is controlled by controllers, they are be being prepared for this, right? The study of philosophies and histories die because they're seen as useless because they don't make you push a button any faster. And Beatty goes on to tell Montag, the reason they are so many sports and activities and mindless things is because you no longer have time to study the deeper things of life. And then Beatty finally tells Montag the reason for all the censorship. He says, colored people don't like little black Sambo, burn it. White people don't feel good about Uncle Tom's Cabin, burn it. Someone's written a book on tobacco and cancer of the lungs. The cigarette people are weeping, burn the book. Serenity, Montag, peace. Montag, take your fight outside, bury it into the incinerator. Funerals are unhappy and pagan, eliminate them too. Five minutes after the person is dead, he's on the way to the big flu. The incinerators serviced by helicopters all over the country. Ten minutes after death, a man's a speck of black dust. Let's not quibble over individuals with memoriams. Forget them. Burn all, burn everything. Fire is bright and fire is clean. So Beatty is proposing... This idea of a sterile society and a society where anything of offense gets banned. And it occurs to Montag that there has to be people who loved books, you know, authors, professors, playwrights, those sort of people. And so he finds an old professor named Faber. And it's him that tells Montag that it was the public, not the government, that destroyed the love of books. And he tells Montag that books give us three important things. First, quality of information. The quality in books is oftentimes much higher than movies. I'm not saying this is always so, right? I, there's a lot of good movies that have a lot of good information that I like. But movies don't, they aren't really made well, okay? Movies, you'll find they're either based the good ones are based off of a book or off of a true story. And this is just the nature of books. Good ones are descriptive because they can't show the story. They have to tell it. Okay, second, leisure to digest it. This is a very interesting note. 
because Faber says that you can't argue with a radio or TV, right? You can't put, but you can put a book down or reread parts you don't understand. But mass media is just constantly throwing information at you. But when reading, you can reason with a book, you can argue with it. Then thirdly and finally, the right to carry out actions based on what we learn from the interaction of the first two. So what Bradbury is saying is, saying through the character of Faber is that the power of the individual lies in the, the ability to read and the power to act upon what they read. And one of the things that he says is that um, it's humorous in our cultural moment, right? When he says he starts talking about the stock market and he's talking about how uh, he got this I, uh, high tech earpiece. And he says, I pay for all this. How? Playing the stock market, of course. The last refuge of the world for the dangerous intellectual out of a job. Well, I played the market and built all this, and I've waited. I've waited trembling half a lifetime for someone to speak to me. I dared speak to no one. That day in the park when you, we sat together, I knew that someday you might drop by. With fire or friendship, it was a hard to guess. I had this little item ready for months. But I also let you go. I am that afraid. Isn't this exactly what we were watching like two or three months ago with GameStop and AMC and Robinhood? I mean, we saw this breakout of people who saw an opening in the culture where they could rebel against the big tech oligarchs. And we saw these people who most wouldn't be considered intellectuals. But like Montag, they wanted to break from the lie they've been told. And then... He gets down to the real problem of individual freedom and blindly following orders, right? He struggles with his proper role of authority. Montag says, Faber, yes, I'm not thinking. I'm just doing like I'm told, like always. You said get the money, I got it. I didn't really think of it myself. When do I start working things out on my own? You've started already by saying that you, what you just said. You'll have to take me on faith. I took others on faith. Yes, and look where we're headed. You have to travel blind for a while. Here's my arm to hold on to. I don't want to change sides and just be told what to do. There's no reason to change if I do that. Montag reads, and when this happens, the whole world opens up to him, and he realizes that he is responsible for the actions he takes, and that he just can't change sides and do the same thing he's been doing. And so he goes and he has all of these emotions that he's never felt before because of reading now. And the book goes on, and I'm not going to read any further so you can read it yourself. But what happens is he becomes a hunted man for having books. And he runs away and meets up with other intellectuals and hides out. So what's the main takeaway from this episode? I think that there can be a lot of themes we can draw from Fahrenheit 451. Uh, we can realize the dangers of mass media. We can talk about the necessity of books or the importance of real honest relationship versus superficial ones. What I want to leave you with is an excerpt from the story that ended up being a dead end for Badbury, um, but some of it would make its way into Fahrenheit 451. It was entitled, Where Ignorant Armies Clash by Night. Uh, Bradbury writes this. The book turned and fought, like some small white animal caught within the flame. It seemed to want to vary to live. It withered and sparkled, and a small gust of gaseous vapor blew from it. Leaf by leaf it burned upon itself. 
as if a hand of fire were turning each page, scanning and burning with the same fire. The pages cringed into black curls, and the curls departed on puffs of illumination. This is an unsettling image. The death of living words emerges from a world without hope or meaning. So that's what I will leave you with. A world without books is a world without hope or meaning. And now, to the mailbag. Uh, mailbag questions come to me, as uh, mentioned before, through Instagram. You can find me at Inkling1776. Uh, you can DM me or um, I throw up little questionnaires every now and then for people to send me questions. And uh, this question is actually really cool. Um, it's one I really appreciate. The question comes from Trinity, and she asks, what do you think would be a good plan for a young creator in a liberal system? Um, wow, that is a great question. This is something that I think all conservative Christian creators have to deal with uh, at some point. Um, the best things to do is first make sure you're based, all right? Make sure you know what you're doing, why you're doing it, what your beliefs are. Um, th that's with anything, but the creative world can have this uh, attraction and can lure you in to things you don't want to be involved in. And it's that's just the nature of the arts. So make sure you're based. Make sure you know what you're doing. Uh, second, uh, make sure you have a community. Make sure you're in a community of um, not just other strong Christians and conservatives, but in a strong community of of creators, right? Who fit who are in that area. Um, it can be hard at times to be a Christian creative, a conservative creative. Um, and constantly be around people of the same mindset as you, but around no one who has the same skills or the same uh, passions as you. Uh, that's something, those are two things I would uh, do. And then the third thing would be to read books on Christian and cr conservative creativity. Um, I can right now list uh, two, three-ish books um, that you should uh, read for this. Um, the first would be Adorning the Dark by Andrew Peterson. It sits, um, I have a special shelf in my room, and that special shelf is where I keep um, books that are extremely impactful that like I read every year and that I think has a lot of good, deep insight. And this book and the other ones I'm going to mention um, all sit on that shelf. Um, it's a phenomenal book. It's it's uh, written in 2019, I think, um, end of 2019, beginning of 2020. It's really good. Uh, you should really read that book, just about Christians, creative, creative community, that sort of stuff. Second book would be, um, it's a two-part book. I have it in one format, and that is um, Heretics and Orthodoxy by G.K. Chesterton. Again, uh, really good apologetics work and a lot of good stuff there about creativity and how stories influence people. And then thirdly, um, the book, the title is Art in the Bible by Francis Schaeffer. And that, again, is a phenomenal book, a very short. I, th I think it's under 100 pages. And I think that that's really important. So one, make sure you're based. Uh, two, surround yourself with others uh, like minded and uh, likened passions. And three, make sure you're staying well read on the subjects and about those passions. Um, thanks for the question. I really appreciate it. And uh, as always, I'm Eon Nunn in this has been story war.